Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. What do school shootings and child maltreatment have in common? The common thread connecting school shootings and child abuse is the conviction that adult rights are more important than children's lives. Gun advocates believe that anyone has a right to own any weapon, never mind how many children die as a result. Child welfare activists on both edges of the political spectrum believe that parents and communities should control children's lives without government so-called interference, despite empirical evidence that current parent-friendly practices are getting children killed. Rectifying this situation is going to require facing the hard fact, the inconvenient truth, that these groups currently control the political narrative and they aren't going to compromise. That makes this a battle, not a conversation. To protect children, we need an organized campaign to reclaim the political middle. And this means, for example, redoubling our lobbying efforts and also being a voice for children in public forums, even if that means that we get shouted down or treated rudely. Now, the more recent school shootings in Uvalde, Texas, motivated me to find out if school shooters were more likely to have been abused or neglected as children. So I searched the usual research sources and also asked Phil Arco from The Link Coalition, which does research into the overlap between child maltreatment, animal abuse, and domestic abuse, about this. And he was unaware of any work being done on this topic. And if anyone would know, he would probably be the one. And by the way, you can find the work of this coalition at simply thelinkcoalition.org. Phil was aware, though, of a project here in Minnesota at Hamlin University, and it's called the Violence Project. And it keeps a massive database on mass murders. The data items on child abuse and neglect appear to show little correlation between shooting school children and having experienced maltreatment as a child. But I don't know exactly what data they relied on or how they got to it. So this is still an open question for me until I know more. We do know from more extensive research that there is a correlation between school shooters and abusing animals as a child. You may have seen the video that the Uvalde shooter posted of himself with a bag, a bag of dead cats. But even without specific research on whether school shooters were often maltreated as children, I think we can still identify a common thread uniting school shootings with the high number of child fatalities from child maltreatment. And that is the overwhelming weight that is given to the rights of adults 
even when it is known that that has deadly consequences for children. And that's easy for any of us to see in the case of gun violence. From the polls that are frequently being featured on the news, I understand that a strong majority of Americans overall, and even a majority of NRA members, agree that a ban on the types of assault rifles that killed the Uvalde children would make common sense, even, even if that limitation only applied to 18 to 21-year-olds. But the virtual worship of the Second Amendment by guns rights activists really trumps common sense. It's less easy to see how this works in child welfare, but the discussion is pretty similar. As we've reported many times, the context in child welfare is that there are a number of family assessment practices, or let's call them by their generic name, alternative response practices, that put children in danger. So since we've talked about it, I won't go into detail about them now, except to just briefly recap that, first of all, giving advance notice of that initial child protection visit and interviewing children in front of the people who are allegedly harming them gives the adults in a household opportunities to coach and intimidate children so they're not going to say what's happening to them. And therefore, the social worker will be less able to keep them safe. Add to that that although workers do get trained now here in Minnesota in fact-finding, there's no requirement to apply that training using any specific protocol. And so again, you have a recipe for children continuing to be abused and neglected despite child protection actually getting to them. And this is particularly frustrating because before the recent reforms, child protection was only screening in 27% of maltreatment reports for some kind of response to go out in person in some way. And now we're responding to 43 or 44% of those calls. And that means about 10,000 more children a year are getting seen by child protection, but we still aren't taking the most basic steps to keep them safe. So as with gun violence, we believe that most people oppose these unsafe practices in child welfare. I don't have any CNN or Quinnipiac polls on this because it's just not that widely known of an issue. But, but I and others have talked with literally hundreds of people about these practices. And so far, I have been stopped every single time, every time, 100% in the middle of the explanation because people are incredulous. They, they, first of all, they think they've misheard me. And so when I explain again, once we clear that up, they usually say things like, what are they thinking? Or how could they do that to a little kid? Now, on this point, let me just take a slight detour. We actually hope to have some hard data on the issue of child fatalities in the next few months because we're doing a project to gather data on children who have been murdered since 2014 by their parents or their parents' domestic partners. And one thing that we've discovered is that almost twice as many children in Minnesota, we're talking about Minnesota here, were killed as were reported in the media. Nearly 160 child murders compared to the 87 that we found in newspapers and TV stories. We are also looking at the Department of Human Services guidelines for when cases should not be tracked to the alternative response. And these were published when the program started in 2000. We would have used guidelines for more recent publications by the department, but those publications don't have as specific information and guidance about which cases should and shouldn't be sent down the family assessment track. 
So using the original guidelines has not only given us some specific items to compare cases to, but it also has the advantage of comparing the family assessment assignments to the stated intent of the original program. And not surprisingly, we are finding that many, if not most cases, have multiple indicators that they were inappropriately assigned to family assessment and should have instead been investigated. So then returning to the main theme, it's important to remember that there is no empirical foundation for alternative response. There have been, in fact, two meta-analyses, one in 2013 and one in 2019, that between them reviewed 75 papers, evaluations, research, and articles on alternative response. And both of these meta-analyses show that it is less safe than traditional investigations, and it has failed in its primary goal, which was to engage parents in a more respectful and less coercive way. What these reviews showed is that in alternative response, the uptake of services is quite low. So how is it that people who oppose, say, limiting access to assault rifles or who don't want to end this practice of interviewing children in front of the adults who are hurting them get their way, even though public opinion and empirical data are strongly against them? It's because people who are on the edges of society with opinions far out of the mainstream, are controlling public policy right now because they control the forums where public policy gets decided. This is hardly an original insight on my part, of course, but it's just good to remind ourselves how far this has developed and to ask the questions of how it happened and what would it take to change policies and laws that are getting our children killed. In terms of how this happened, I would offer the theory that people in the fringe groups that have taken over public policy have been radicalized. I know that's a strong term to use about our fellow citizens, even if they are somewhat fanatical advocates for guns rights or practices that are putting vulnerable children at risk. And I don't hold myself out as an expert on how people get radicalized or what all the signs and symptoms are of that condition, but Consider this idea as a reasonable enough hypothesis to ask you uh, to consider it because just from reading media accounts that we have all seen, uh, for example, young men who were radicalized in America or Europe and went to fight for ISIS, it appears that there are a few key features to look for. One is that the process of accepting extreme views allows the person the benefits of entering into a small and close community of supportive and like-thinking individuals. It's a cure for loneliness, for isolation, for lack of meaning in one's life. And secondly, if you want to stay in that community, one has to accept the official doctrine whatever that may be, without question and without alteration. Members of these sects only talk to one another or at least only listen to people from their in-group. And in that environment, even extreme points of view can become normal. Questions and suggestions are not encouraged or allowed. People who do so will be shamed or they'll be threatened or ultimately banned from the group. Further, Outsiders who do not accept these extreme doctrines are condemned by the in-group in the strongest possible terms. They are going to hell. They are traitors. They are not woke. They are racist. Or whatever is the worst condition to which you can assign non-believers. 
This situation didn't develop overnight. It's been building for a good 40 or 50 years. During that time, sensible, moderate people in our country have allowed extreme situations to develop, and they include the enormous income gap between ordinary people, poor people, and the extremely wealthy, the so-called welfare reform of the 1990s that ended up creating deep poverty for many millions of children, particularly in BIPOC communities, the nimbyism that reduced the supply of affordable housing, allowing huge loan companies to burden our children with unsustainable college debt, and many similar long-term trends. We also allowed school programs to be stripped away so children who couldn't afford it were supposed to pay for basketball or football if they wanted to participate, or playing in the band or the orchestra or being in the school play or participate in art class was no longer possible for so many children because despite our unbelievable wealth, Ordinary people with limited means were burdened with these school costs and couldn't or wouldn't pay for them anymore. Just on a related note, we have now college professors in some states who can be sued by any citizen who thinks they have taught critical race theory or said too much about the shame of slavery or about how we have stolen land from and broke treat, broken treaties with Native Americans. That can get you sued and lose you your livelihood. And also, we now have serious discussions about <clears throat> not the hard work of reforming police or child welfare and holding people who work in those systems accountable, but instead totally abolishing them. Ordinary people are fully aware that these proposals won't work out well for people who rely on having good police or for children who need to be protected from violent or dysfunctional adults, but their voices are drowned out by many of those on the edges of the society. And we have allowed this to creep up on us insidiously over many years. And, you know, it's totally understandable how this turn of events happened. Most of us have our hands full just living our own lives, let alone spending good parts of it, time and treasure, getting involved in politics. But now we have let things go to the point where restoring our basic democratic rights is going to take activism from the middle. We will have to become more like the patriots of the Revolutionary War. And in fact, I'm actually recording this particular podcast sitting in the middle of the Green Mountains in Vermont, where Seth Warner and Ethan Allen established the Green Mountain Boys in, 19, in 1770. These were resourceful men and women who, thought, who fought the British using what we might currently call guerrilla tactics because they knew the mountains and the British didn't. They are famous, among other things, for helping win the Battle of Bennington, Vermont. And today, if you're anywhere near Bennington, you can see from far away and from almost any direction the tall Bennington Monument commemorating that battle. That resourcefulness, resourcefulness lives on to this day. You may remember Hurricane Sandy, which is called Tropical Storm Sandy in Vermont because it was no longer a hurricane when it got here by way of New Jersey. But it was devastating nevertheless. The town that I am in was completely surrounded by water for a couple of weeks. The roads were washed away. A cemetery down the street from where I am sitting was on a hill and it got washed out completely, which was which sended coffins all over the highway. And around here, houses were stuck at weird angles in the dirt like a Lego toy in a sandbox. And when the storm was over, 
the citizens of Vermont went to their garages and their pole barns and got out their tractors and backhoes and dump trucks and other heavy equipment and within a matter of three months repaired the roads and got things back to normal. In contrast, in New Jersey, not, not to denigrate New Jersey, I love the state, but there are stories that two or three years later, they were still trying to get contracts uh, leaded to do the road repairs. So not to get overly dramatic about it, but I think we could use a bit of that give me liberty or give me death attitude that allowed us to win the Revolutionary War. What this might mean, for example, is that people who are somewhere in the middle of the political spectrum will have to start doing things like making sure that local school boards aren't taken over by radicals, whether from the right or the left. And we'll have to similarly ensure that precinct caucuses or public hearings about housing policy or whatever are not flooded with extremists who turn around and shout down anyone with a contrary opinion. Going to such meetings may result in getting yelled at. Worse yet, people might get trolled on social media and potentially threatened. And even one's children might be at risk of getting in the line of fire. So everyone will have to decide for themselves when taking a risk is not prudent for their family obligations. But overall, it seems likely that regaining control of moderate practices and policies is not going to be a risk-free or pain-free undertaking. So in sum and in short, where we are now, because we've neglected the basic machinery of democracy, is that we have turned what could have been a conversation into a fight. But it will be worth the battle if we can restore our democracy and start once again to keep our children safe. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.